Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Dr. Michael Casale is a computational cognitive neuroscientist and the chief science officer of Striver. In this episode, Dr. Casale and Dr. Kamati Reddy talk about how people use data to make decisions and how to think clearly. Last time I saw you down here, like the world has literally gone crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, crazy is definitely one adjective. It's definitely a different, different place than we've, we've ever experienced, for sure, certainly in our life. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So look, I think it's useful. You're kind of like a, you know, one of these polymaths. So it's useful just to give us like a background on just your training, you know, where you're from what you've been focusing your time on yeah and you know it's not that impressive but i think it's somewhat relevant to some of the things that we've been talking about you know with the the current situation and how critical data is so my background is in something actually called computational cognitive neuroscience which is a mouthful so i never say that to people and really it's just a kind of a discipline of experimental psychology so i did my PhD work years ago now at UC Santa Barbara in a lab, uh, looking at a lot of learning behaviors. So kind of core cognitive uh, behaviors and, and the brain areas that subserve them. So that's the kind of cognitive neuroscience part of that. What we were also doing back then, which I thought was you know fascinating and the thing that drew me into the field was trying to then model quantitatively those behaviors. And so we were developing along with looking at the data from the experiments, developing models that would then uh, allow us to make predictions about what would happen if you start altering certain brain chemistry, certain brain areas to that particular learning behavior that we were studying. And so that could be really useful for a lot of reasons. One, just kind of understanding how does the brain work, but you know, more pointedly, we were looking at you know, kind of drug development, potentially for things like Parkinson's patients. So if you want to address the cognitive ailments, right, of these different neurocognitively impaired patient groups, one way to do that is to really have a holistic understanding, right, of what the brain's doing in a very kind of precise quantitative way. And, you know, the general theme, though, is that you want to develop these things to be able to make predictions ultimately, which is the goal of, of a lot of modeling, obviously, in a lot of disciplines. Since then, I've done a bunch of stuff to try to apply that work outside of the lab. <laughs> yeah. It was... Uh, you know, I had a little crisis conscious finishing up my PhD if I wanted to stay in the academic realm. You and I have talked a lot about kind of the field of, of academia and all the different disciplines and all the different ways that it's, you know, kind of good and bad. But for me, it was more interesting to think about ways I could start to apply a lot of that knowledge outside of the lab. And so I did that in a lot of different domains. I did some market research um, work, which was really interesting, again, modeling kind of people's behavior, but in this case, it was for white people like stuff and to try to predict white people like stuff. Um, white, pe white people liking stuff or why people? <laughs> why people? <laughs> white people don't it's like It's not stuff. a bad idea to have, you know, the, the model on why white people like stuff either. White people don't like anything. They just kind of sit around. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously. No, it's, it was really fascinating actually work, but, you know, thinking about my legacy as helping a big beer company make better craft beer was interesting. It wasn't <clears throat> the terminal point for me. After a couple of years of doing that, I found my way back to San Diego, back to California. So doing a lot of work now in the kind of education space. So I actually did some kind of hybrid research, applied research at UC San Diego. 
that was with a gentleman who was really interested in doing the same thing, taking a lot of these cognitive psychology principles and seeing if they work in the classroom. So some of that work was aimed at, you know, applied outlets. And that was interesting as well. And again, kind of thinking about like these models and can you start to predict learning behavior uh, based on environmental conditions, et cetera. And then not too soon after that, or not too long after that, I should say, I met you, something called the West Health Institute in La Jolla, a medical, nonprofit medical research organization. And there I was actually brought on to do biostatistician type of work. And I think one of the first projects I worked on was with you. And yeah, that's right. Company that subsequently uh, came out of that, helping, think, you know, my role in that, if you remember way back when, was to really help you guys think about data. And it was in a different capacity. That was actually like not doing any kind of predictive model development. But inevitably, I ran across some of the kind of epidemiological work uh, that was going on at Scripps and with other folks thinking about kind of predictions of social contagions and networks and stuff like that. So that was really interesting work. The funny thing is the stuff we're going to get into today, it, these initial things that you were thinking about and studying... And I feel like the names of those have evolved so much, even over the last 10 years. It'd be fair to say, if I threw out the term neuromarketing, that's something that was like the commercial application of what you were talking about, right, in the research realm. So, which like clearly, every time I go to the Amazon webpage and it goes, we think you're going to like this. And I'm like, huh, is that what Mike does or did <laughs> contributed to at one time? It's like so many aspects of what you're talking about. And it feels like that's all coming full circle, everything with the statistics and stuff and the models. And that's what I really wanted to talk to you about because, well, let's just jump right in because I, th I think this is something just so incredibly important from a public health standpoint. And as a physician, someone who has or expected to have more than a cursory understanding of statistics and models, how to interpret epidemiology, I still feel like there's so many gaps in my knowledge. And if it's if those gaps exist for me and my colleagues, and I've been talking about COVID-19 and, and how these things spread with a lot of my colleagues, then I can guarantee that it must be a really confusing minefield to navigate for a lot of people. So this was an interesting thinking of data and ways to use information germane to whatever's going on in the world right now. I was basically forced with a personal decision about this and having to use all my wits when it comes to processing data in the face of uncertainty. That's, you know, that's one of the themes I think we'll hit on today is you're always dealing with imperfect information, but how imperfect it is and the nature of the imperfections are critical, right? To right. be able to understand the shortcomings of what you're going to be able to predict and like how certain you can be. And that's so, that's so important. But anyway, just as a personal kind of anecdote, thinking about being safe, it's pretty wild. So uh, a friend of mine, a guy that you actually know, Robbie, had planned a trip back in, I think this was October. And, the, and for a long time, I've been wanting to do this trip to do some climbing, some bit of a climber in uh, Thailand. Thailand's got some great climbing on the Ottoman Sea, and then do some skiing in Japan and Hokkaido, right? Some legend right. Uh, goes on up there in Niseko and other places. So I was like, you know, if we're going to go over there, we could actually try to hit both. We can go spend a week right. in and a week on uh, in the Indian Ocean and do some climbing. It would be a great kind of adventure trip. And uh, it wasn't hard to convince him to do that. So we booked all this travel in October. Well, you know, here comes January. And we're starting to see the first kind of signs of COVID cropping up, much like we saw with SARS 10, 12 years prior. And it wasn't on anybody's radar here because it wasn't affecting anybody here. 
and I don't know, like typical American kind of thinking and not thinking about the fact that this could affect them in some way and, and pretty insulated. But for me, it was important that I was really vigilant, paying attention to like day to day what was going on because, you know, new information would come out in the media that I would consume and thinking about well, what does this imply for the trip? Like, is it safe to go on this trip? And, you know, I'm watching this stuff. I'm like, well, this is bad. Like, it's clearly affecting a lot of people. They're shutting cities down. But it doesn't seem to be killing a lot of people. And that was something that I looked at, too. And it's important to like, think about these layers, right? Just because there's a contagion doesn't mean that it's necessarily an incredibly bad thing. I mean, you know this better than I do. Infectious disease around right. us all the time. We're constantly acquiring things. Humans are incredibly susceptible to a lot of stuff. But most of it is pretty harmless, right? Not going to kill us. Well, here is something that nobody knew what to do with. Infection rates were high. Some people were just dying on the spot, it seemed like, and some people were completely fine, asymptomatic even. And so, you know, just kind of keeping track on that and then seeing how it would go into other countries. Is it something that they're able to contain? Is it making it outside the borders, especially the, you know, East and Southeast Asian countries that I'm going to be visiting? You know, flights, you know, they're going to be canceled. Do I have to worry about this? And so, you know, we had actually thought about bailing on the trip at some point. So this is like getting into now late January. And I was like, you know what, by mid-fab, so our trip was, was planned for early March. And by mid-fab, I was like, we got to make a call either way if we're going to like cancel this stuff. And of course, it's on nobody's radar here. So I'm telling people like, I might do this trip, but I don't know because there's this disease. Like, what are you talking Dude, about? That like, is crazy. So, so what, you're telling me, what you're telling me is out of sheer luck, the person just happens to be trained heavily in statistics, biostats, neuroscience, just happened to be on a trip in an area that was at high risk for this and it was, you know, that's crazy at the chances. And not, to, and not to say, you know, that I made the right decision or anything, but, you know, for me, I was thinking, well, what kind of worst case scenarios, like that I would be exposed, that I could actually acquire it and then what right. actually would affect me. And just based on the positive data that I saw and how things had unfolded over now months, right, in China and associated places, you know, it seemed like it was an okay risk, right? Even if we contracted it, the chances that it would be, it would actually, we would actually show symptoms was, was low. But then even if we showed symptoms, the fact, you know, that we would die was really low. So like, you kind of try to take all these things into account, even though there wasn't much known about it, you could start to look at at least kind of existing data. And again, I, you know, very unclear if I made the right decision or not. And I don't think we even know now, right? Like now we're kind of just being extra cautious. We'll talk about that, like decision-making in the face of uncertainty, but like, you know, just being super cautious about all that. And so, you know, for my friend and I, maybe a, a bit cavalier, certainly when thinking about the trip that we were going to take. And, you know, if we hadn't planned all this stuff, I'm certainly we wouldn't have planned a trip. But in the face of all that, it seemed like, you know what, let's let's give it a shot. We went and we traveled around. You did and, go. Yeah. And slowly but surely. So we came back. So we left. I, I, sorry. We came back early March. So we left late February. We came back early March. And I'm shocked that you went. Oh, you're, oh wow. And it was like, okay. things, it's like, I don't, I can't think of like a good, like, analogy for this i'm sure there's like a cool movie sequence i could reference where you're just like driving right in front of the pyroclastic flow coming from or like no just like like things closing behind you as you're driving (laughs) i had this very different experience but i remember like um so nobody knows this that doesn't necessarily live in california but you know southern california particularly it does rain here it doesn't rain often but when it rains these storms off the coast can get really nasty right because they're just they're kind of unfettered coming right off the water this 
kind of clash of, of climates, I guess, you know, from the coastal to the in, like kind of more inland. And then those two systems creating a lot of precipitation and storms, whatever. I don't know much about it, but I think that's basically just how yeah. that stuff works. Anyway, it, was, it can be pretty crazy and there's no drainage here, right? So like at some point, this was like years ago, I had to take my dad who was visiting at the time from right. Santa Barbara down to LAX. I told him I'd give him a ride back um, to the airport which was really nice to me as it turns out. But anyway, so big storm. And so we're driving down and starting to rain a little bit. On the way back, it's furiously raining. Like I can't see, you know, 200 feet in front of me. And they're closing the 101 as I'm driving through it. <laughs> like, I'm like, should I be driving? Like listening to reports and there's like, just, you know, I'm the only car on the road. Just really kind of crazy stuff. It reminded me of that, but like worse, where they're just kind of closing you know, sections of the country and whole countries and ditching flights. And for me, I'm worried about like, are we going to be able to get back in the country? Because, you know, I, I kind of, I'm also thinking about not just the existing kind of circumstance, but how people are going to react to it. So I'm always trying to keep an eye on like, well, what people, not as best as I could, what are people going to do based on this information? I'm trying to guess how people are going to react because I know how I would react, but I know that other people are going to be a little bit more knee jerky, et cetera. Lo and behold, we get to LAX, there's nobody in the airports, and we cruise right by. No one asks any questions about where we were. And obviously, it was just so different, right? And all the countries yeah. we're visiting in Thailand and Asia, or Japan, I should say, you know, very hypervigilant thermal scanners, of course, not to say that actually does anything necessarily. I guess it's one step, but, but you know, them kind of taking much more precautions, I'm sure left with the, the scars of SARS, you know, previously. So it was pretty wild. And then we came back and of course I was like, well, this, the chances I've been exposed are probably pretty high and just monitoring myself, not trying to expose myself to, to others and just doing some self, some self isolation before that was even a thing. This was like early March, just so I wasn't going to be a carrier. And I honestly, I was like, this is- so You were thinking about that back then, even the, the well, general had- zeitgeist at the time, although like probably majority of people weren't thinking it through that many levels, you were thinking, hey, hold on, there are some, you know, this could be a cascade failure on a big scale, right? If but I again, don't do this right. Yeah. You know, and, and dealing with the information that I had. And, you know, I guess that's a big theme here is the, the role of information. And so how critical it is to have the knowledge that we need to and how we just in this country don't really have it right now. And you're seeing things play out differently in different places where they do have information. But even information isn't enough, right? Information isn't knowledge, right? It's not doesn't tell you what to do. It just says, this is the state of affairs. And then you still have to make decisions based on that. So I, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but yeah. that was, that's the gist of what we're doing. So I experienced this firsthand a little bit with these recent travels and just, again, trying to gather as much information as I could. Man, you got out. super lucky. It's not all luck. Obviously your past experience and just being very careful uh, about this helped you think through the right decision-making. And this is the one thing that always bothers me on TV when I see, like, when I hear people like Fauci and them talk, right? And other scientists, they go, well, we go off the data. And I'm like, hold on. There always seems to be a step that's skipped in this conversation. It's you can get a lot of data, but really it's like, who's drawing what conclusions from it? But no one ever talks about, they all talk about data in a way that's like, oh, clearly here's the answer. Do you not see the answer? That must mean you're stupid. There seems to be, a huge latitude, right? You can get one data set and have six different people go, no, I think the probabilities are different on option A, B, and C, and D. Before getting into that, I think I'm just thinking back to this environment that's 1918, right? World War I ends. We have no antibiotics. There's telegrams and you know horses still in cars that can barely go faster than 100 miles an hour. I mean, how the heck 
uh, did they get information then? What was reliable? Because there were good decisions made back then, and information did travel. And have we really progressed past that in terms of reliable information? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly no expert in kind of the history of you know, epidemiology and the role of information and policy and decision-making and public health at large. But just from the little that I understand, maybe one, I guess you consider it a tailwind in that case, was the kind of monolithic nature of the press right at the time. And you talk about kind of the Hearst empire and, and a few of the other kind of conglomerates that owned most of the information dissemination in the country, right? In terms of the newspapers. Which was yeah, big. that's a really good point. And, you know, I think it's, it's a good question. And I'm not sure necessarily what kind of procedures and policies were enacted on the part of the government or if just locals. And, you know, that's certainly part of it is like just having one source of truth, even if it wasn't accurate, people were all doing the same thing at the same time. And so if you did get it right, or you were overly conservative about it in that case, people would just follow suit. I think, and this is part of the problem, is we have access to so much information and people just don't know how to handle it, right? We're just incredibly, not just a data illiterate uh, kind of people, like humans, right? Like, I think that's just not a skill we're, we're good at, like interpreting data, but we also just don't have great reliable ways to filter out news sources. So just the role of critical thinking, and you know, obviously this coming up again and again and again, is just something that it's hard for people to come by in general, unless you're formally trained and like do a bunch of postgraduate work to become a medical doctor. And that required, you know, you to have critical thinking skills even prior to entering med school and somewhere for me. But without that formal kind of approach to critical thinking, I don't know that like I'd be any better off than a lot of folks who I'm seeing just like, it's just so frustrating to see the way people are taking information the way they want it and not even thinking about kind of other layers of information that contextualize whatever they're reading at the time. But that, so I think that's one factor, right? It's just the kind of control of media. And that could work both ways, or that could also obviously be really bad. A great example of that is I've been reading this book. Man, I, I never quite know the author's name. But Homo Deus, right? It's the guy that wrote... Uh, Yuval Harari. Yuval Harari, right? That guy's wicked smart. You know, when, you, when he had a, I think it was a TED Talk or a Google Talk and it's almost too unbelievable to think that one person could just de novo come up with this many insights. And then when I heard, I, I felt a little bit like better about myself when I, when I heard the story about how he did it. He's like, no, I actually been talking about this for like 30 years in class notes. That's usually how it goes, right? So, yeah. It comes to prominence. Maybe it's more relevant or it just gets disseminated in the right out or whatever. But, you know, he's yeah. definitely the, the upside community, the evolutionary psychology, uh, psychology community that's like, a lot of the folks at UCSB and Steve Pinker and a lot of those guys. So, Gad uh, Sad, I'll throw his name in there. Just to, yeah, yeah. Just so to a lot of what we know right. from that world and then making inferences about the nature of, of how people right. can act, conduct themselves in society and even making predictions about like how things will work, how things will fail. And he uses, I don't think it was intentionally directed at like this particular point, but thinking about a lot of the kind of communist regime in China and, you know, Uncle Mao and a lot of basically the, the kind of agri personality. Yeah. yeah. And then but just like the agricultural decisions that were made and how that, you know, little bits of misinformation because, it, you know, everything was just government control at the time resulted in kind of horrific famines, right? Because of, you know, some estimate that they thought they were going to get about kind of grains for the year, crops for the year, and then being able to not 
account for that properly. And so it's good sometimes when you have competing information, of course, and that our country is based on this idea of competition and kind of the, the, the strong surviving and all that stuff. But, but, but not so necessarily when you have all these sorts of information. Yeah. And so oh, it was an uncle, uncle, that was Uncle Ho in Vietnam. I don't think they call him Uncle Ma, but whatever, whatever nickname they gave to. Right. Whatever the, the fatherly the, loving nickname. But anyway, but the point is, you know, in terms of being able to account for misinformation, if you have some other kind of sources, you can do that. So it's good and bad. So that was one factor. I think another factor was just probably the bigger factor, I got to imagine, and you alluded to it, was transportation. I mean, people just didn't get around. Yeah. You know, yeah. Is going to any they're going anywhere right and then how many people were in their town and they lived they were already socially distancing right just yeah, by living in tribes within 20 miles of each other i can count in the circles that i that i live in people like you and a couple others who i can depend on to answer these kind of questions but imagine you living in rural ireland in 1918 like who are you going to come into contact with that's going to be a scientist probably a low probability or India, where I'm from. So it's like, where do you get that information from? And how do you evaluate it? If I had to go back a little bit into this whole conversation, this is one of the things that is a loaded question for sure, but let's just talk a little bit about epistemology because this is like the basis of uh, what philosophers and scientists always um, argue about, but it serves obviously a really strong foundation for all these conclusions that we're making. Like, how do we know what we know. Because I've, I always remember this statistic. When I was going through medical school, and even now, there are like tests you can do for current physicians who've been trained for years, and you ask them these what would be relatively simple questions on epidemiology, and they get them wrong consistently. You know, we would trust them to take out an appendix without hesitating, right? So clearly, there's some core level of knowledge about knowledge, right? like how we know the stuff we know. What does this data mean? It's like I'm reminded of that quote from Richard Feynman. He's like the easiest person to fool is yourself. And so much of the stuff that we think about is all counterintuitive, right? What's true is so counterintuitive. It's like, what are these weird cognitive distortions that we have that are putting barriers in our ability to believe truths? in this data. For example, in this specific case with COVID, it's like, hey, you're asymptomatic. There's this nameless, faceless problem. You're looking around and everyone looks okay. Hey, we got to close schools. Like what is going on with our brains that's not allowing us to understand and see those truths, even though there are precedents and information that point to those things? What's wrong with like the human species there? I, I mean, one, that's a, I mean, it's a great question. It's completely obviously relevant what's going on now. <laughs> it is better than anyone as a physician who's prescribed, you know, antibacterial or just any kind of antiviral medicine where patients won't continue the whole dose. And so they're like, oh, I feel better. I'm going to stop doing it because I feel better. And then they're going to feel worse. And then it's or they get yeah. the virus, you know what I mean? Or, come, or it's even worse. So just just a failure of understanding the mechanism. And I think what your kind of point and question is, which is like, well, what is, why is that? Like, we know that's a problem. We know people are just using basically things that resonate with whatever kind of look and feel they see around them. And I don't know that there's an, an exact answer to that or exact understanding, but you can certainly think about a lot of the kind of popular science books that have come out about, you know, kind of thinking and the brain and all these things really often uh, leverage this idea of these two systems, right? That function in the brain. And it's probably not perfect to call it like dual systems. I'm sure they're interrelated somehow, but people talk about like the reptilian brain, right? And then we talk right. about 
It's good enough to win a Nobel Prize. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tversky's work and thinking about yeah. rational behaviors in general. And, and then, of course, that's a lot of what I studied as well. So when we think about learning, we have to know what kind of learning systems we're tapping into because different types of information are going to be subserved by different brain areas. And that's not because some engineer 2,000 years ago figured out that's what the, how they want to build humans. That was evolution, right? Our brains evolved in an evolutionary environment. They call it the EAA, the Evolutionary Adaptive Era, where basically our brains are basically in, in the savanna 10,000 years ago. And so thinking about what's, what's optimal for survival then is very much not necessarily optimal for survival now necessarily. And so but isn't that a weird thing, though? Because you would think that if you're in that environment, which we obviously evolved in, right? Like it's... Like, for example, powered flight and wearing your seatbelt would be something that's very foreign to a Neanderthal or whatever my ancestors were, probably Neanderthals back then, right? But that population of people in early hominids did have to deal with infectious diseases. So why isn't this specific part of the spectrum of things that can cause human harm, why aren't we better at things like dealing with viruses and transmission of disease and contagion? Well, again, if you think about what, what I refer to as this EEA, this adaptive era where our brains sit now is basically based on where we were as a society, not even a society, as, as humans, right, 10,000 years ago. Like, sure, there were contagions, but we never really had to deal with that as a cognitive function. That was always our bodies taking care of that. And uh-huh. so, and the thing about thinking about evolutionary features and adaptations is there's often a lot of byproducts, right? That's the problem with that field of study is it's, it's hard to make predictions because you can argue that something is, you know, evolved for a particular adaptation, or you can say maybe it's just the way that we react and interact with our environment is a byproduct of some other larger kind of evolutionary feature of our cognition. So it's always hard to say like, what's a kind of directly adaptive feature and just what, what's a, an appendage basically. And so what might be going on is we don't have, the ability to process the loads of information reasonably. Like it's loads of information, especially when you, you know, I mean, you know, you, you studied medicine, right? It takes yeah. years, you still don't know shit. So like, not that you don't know shit, but like, you know, I know what doctors know and it's such, so like that much of what needs to be known to, to be able to really accurately all the time, just be able to go right in and diagnose. And that's why there's specialties and subspecialties, et cetera. So you're dealing with just a ton of information. Your brain is like, fuck this, like, I'm just going to kind of boil it down. So like the simplest thing that makes sense to me, the quick and the dirty, that's that reptilian brain system that we've evolved that's so good. And, and for certain things, it works really well, like for kind of identifying predators and should I come and should I go? It's yeah. kind of built up this system over years. So if you're in the savanna and you're seeing kind of herds of lions attack your people for years, you're, you're going to be able to make a decision real quick if that line is ready to strike or not off in the distance. And you didn't do that because you explicitly like took a journal every day. It was just this feeling that built up and our brain's doing all that calculus in the background. So similarly, I think we're just using the wrong information. We're using maybe the right systems to learn. It's that implicit system, but it's not built for taking in loads of information about virology and epidemiology and being able to say, yeah, the this seems right and this is the decision I should make. It's saying, what's the quick and the dirty information I can get? What do you look like? That seems to be fine. Because again, like mapping. What sounds safe. What seems like. So it's it's the right system dealing with kind of like, I don't want to say the wrong information, but applied to the wrong information is probably a better way to say it. So, you know, just, you can map a lot of irrational behaviors to that. And you can think about other things that we do 
um, not thinking about the future, right? There's like this discounting of the future. Yeah, hyper- right. Right. People yeah. are notoriously bad neighbors. And unless you're like brought up that way and you have to have it drilled into you, people are just not naturally uh, good at that. And so these are things, again, that, you know, we think are- Is it learnable? Yeah, I think, I think the, all the evidence around us in the world says it's learnable, right? It's just something that you need to drill in as a kind of a young child. And there's, there's like the marshmallow test and all these things that kind of, you know, speak to Delayed that. gratification and things like that. Yeah, but like these yeah. learned behaviors and, and probably I would imagine there's a critical window. You can certainly learn them later in life. I think it's harder. You need more like stronger rewards and incentives to do it. But, but you know, I think it's learnable. But it's an interesting kind of feature of humans and then thinking about why. But yeah, no, I mean, no one's found a perfect solution. We were dealing with this, right? At the right. medical organization that we worked with, one of the other projects was, I mean, the thing that your, the, your whole idea was built around a lack of patient adherence to something that was good for them, which is doing their physical rehabilitation exercises. And I was doing something similar, looking at those that were at high risk for type 2 diabetes and thinking about what are the interventions you can provide people to incentivize them, knowing they're really bad at doing things that are good for themselves if they're off in the future. How do you make that more apparent to them? And no one's licked this yet. There's some really interesting research that's going on, even in kind of the virtual reality space, thinking about can you just get someone in that headset and, ima- and not just imagine, but see the consequences in exactly. That's right. So put them in, a, in, a, in an immersive environment where they can visually feel what it would be like so that, that feeling comes back to their memory when they have to make a decision later. And that's one of the things that, you know, like when you talk about these Navy SEAL guys, for example, like, you know, I think uh, Joe Rogan has Jocko Willink on all the time and he's got a great podcast too. He's like this dude who goes, hey, I, I like the suffering, right? When you talk to people like David Goggins, he's like, I know that doing this is going to suck. And, but it'll pay off later. And that's very hard to visualize. And when it comes to like things like physical therapy, it's very different from regular exercise because you know that doing that activity is going to be painful. Like it's for sure going to be painful. Right. And humans just are going to avoid it's any situation where they're willingly going to put themselves you know, in a painful way where they're going to feel pain, except for these weird freaks of nature, right? <laughs> like that are a little bit um, better about visualizing those things. And that's, I think, where the things you're working on right now with VR can help. But so to come back to this situation, because I think it just provides such an incredible visceral example of what everyone's going through. So what would be really helpful is what, where are you getting your information? Because (laughs) what you're saying, we're being inundated with like, I grew up with three channels. You and I both are about the same age. We grew up with three channels and rabbit ears on our TV. So it was like really clear. It's like Peter Jennings is on ABC and he's telling us what we should know. Then CNN came along and now we have, 10,000 channels. And this is probably an, an, something that human beings or you know mammals have never had to deal with before. So it's like our brains just haven't evolved to deal with it. So how do you parse out signal from noise? Where are you getting your information from right now? How do we know what's misinformation? Yeah, it's so hard. I don't know that there's any kind of tried and true way. And, you know, I had, a, I had some kind of just call, like I have friends and I have colleagues and paying attention if they, if I feel that like they're a domain expert, Pay attention to what they know, because I can't be an expert. I have to lean on others. But you can start to at least think about, again, this is where kind of critical thinking comes in. Like, think about if you, just to take the COVID example. So if you want to know about who to, who's, who to trust, who would you listen to? I think a lot of people would, and we'll get into kind of some of the, the deviants here, but like yeah. medical people, medical community knows what they're doing. And you and I know that's better than nothing but like there is so much discrepancy and in information coming out of the medical community now 
Well, no shit, because again, a lot of these, this is, we talk about expertise, right? And this, I think it's back to the role of expertise. Well, what is the problem? The problem when I'm trying to figure out what data to pay attention to, what are, who are the people that are going to know about data? Is it physical therapists? Is it orthopedic surgeon? Probably not. Is it even in general, my GP? Probably not. Do they read the medical journal? Do they know about virology? Have they been keeping up? Probably not. So I want a virologist. I want an epidemiologist. And I want maybe a hospitalist to tell me about the impact of all this on hospitals, right? Because that's really what we're all doing here, right? At the end of the day is hospital overload. It's not necessarily even the worst thing in the world if you catch, you know, COVID. And, and that's just like fundamental lack of understanding. So that's what I look for. The CDC, I also trust government institutions. And again, I think about what they know, what they don't know. And maybe I have a leg up, but again, I'm talking, I'll talk about the more general case, but you know, I'm kind of knowing what I know, which isn't a lot about like the nature of viruses, how they transmit. I'm trying to figure out what are the key things that would make the difference for me. And again, even when I left for that trip, not a lot of information, but I'm looking at kind of things like the spread rate, right? How easy is this thing to spread? Is it leaving China? Is China doing what they need to do to protect borders and our other countries? So that's important is you see the ship blowing up in China, you don't really see it in these adjacent countries, which is some good news. But also are the reporting mechanisms, like are they there for kind of reporting accurately? A death rate, right? Are people getting this and are they dying? So as much as you can trust that information, those are things that are important for me. And now, obviously, we've got so much more complex and layered. I'm looking at, again, those experts who I think would actually have something relevant to say. I'm tuning everybody else out. And I've literally stopped reading a lot of the news lately and not recommending that to anyone. But like, I can't watch CNN's a joke, yes. right? CNN's a joke. CNN's sensationalist. Like, obviously, forget about Fox and those who never ha- even had a pretense that they were delivering news, but but CNN had a pretense they were delivering news. And I, it looks like clickbait to me. It's just like, they're putting numbers up, absolute numbers with no relevant context, you know? What do you mean? Like what kind of well, like So like, like that, like a 300 more people die in Italy and it's the biggest, boldest letters at the top, but they're not, they, the implication being that's really bad, but we don't know if that's bad. There's people dying every day, right, from like other diseases. We just know how to deal with, or we have a protocol, I should say, we never deal with that. And so I think some of this is the novelty of it. Oh shit, like anybody dies, then it's like, this is something we have to worry about. And I think it's because of people are, they have a captive audience and they know like that people are just gonna click on that. Maybe my more cynical side is saying the CNNs of the world are actually like providing that, you know, mis- not misinformation, but certainly without the context so that I can get more traffic to their website. And this is what happens when you have a for-profit media too, by the way, right? This isn't like I'm not singling out CNN or any of these other organizations. The fact of the matter is they make their living off of ad revenue and traffic to their website. It's a trained muscle. That's a reflex that they've had for a long time. And to them, there's no shame in applying that same reflex to when it comes to a contagion versus a little child missing, you know, in some town somewhere, a tornado, right? I mean, to them, it's all a tragedy. And importantly, I'm not saying that they're even saying things that are incorrect, like factually correct. But again, it's all about how you interpret and how you disseminate. And then compatibly, I'm seeing a lot of my friends in the medical community, a lot of even frontline nurses and physicians who, again, are, have one domain piece of this reflexively. Like there was a story, it was really frustrating to me. I saw a story come out about a 36-year-old guy, I think. Uh, it was one of the New York Times headlines. 36-year-old guy dies from COVID-19. Well, okay, like what, and so what, like what are we supposed to do with that information? Yeah. And the fact that everybody's sharing this, the implication being like, well, young people can get it too. Everybody stay the fuck home. It's like, yeah, okay, like let's stay home. Let's play, let's play it safe as long as we can do that. But don't pretend that we know what's going on here. And don't pretend that you know the mechanisms that are going to actually mitigate this. So 
I'm just always looking for like new data points. And I think Fauci is yeah. like a, great about this too. And so saying like, we're learning stuff every day. And I think they're just taking the most conservative approach because again, in the face of great uncertainty, why not try to do that and save lives? Because really, and you know this too, the really the end game here is not to prevent people from getting it. People are going to get it and people might even die. It's to really defer the impact on the hospitals so that hospitals aren't having to make hard decisions about who gets the ventilator. That's, right. that's, that's what this is all for at the end of the day, right? It's an underprepared, maybe even underfunded, you could argue, hospital system uh, across the country, healthcare system more broadly. And so like these are the things I think. So in, when I get information, I'm just trying to like piece dots together. I'm getting like, well, here's some raw numbers. So I'm getting like looking at like incidence rates. And then also when they try to make comparisons, that's another frustrating thing. It's like, well, it, we're on the same trajectory as Italy. Like what a gross oversimplification. Like the dynamics are incredible. within the country. New York's going to be so different than LA, right? Like maybe similar population sizes, but so many important factors in terms of disease transmission, viral transmission that are so important and different that you can't really compare things. And so- That frustrates if- me as a physician too, because for example, like when you think about, I'll give you three examples. One is like you talked about, let's say the two, LA is a town that we know is a commuter town, right? So you're sitting in your car. So you're on a, <laughs> for years, people have been social distancing because they're stuck in traffic six feet away from each other. So, you know, that's a very different scenario than New York, uh, New York City specifically, where you're never more than three feet away from people. You're walking down the street. You're, you know, you've got, uh, you're, you're in the subway. You're crowded in those things. Look at World War II and the tube, for example, in London was the safe haven, right? During the Blitz. It was like where people went to be safe and to, it was a shelter. And now that's like a death zone, right? Yeah. For like this, how ironic is that? And I've noticed all these weird things about how humans behave now. For example, the social distancing thing is interesting to me because when we don't have social distancing, what do we do? We sit in a line at the grocery store. We actually engineer grocery stores like Amazon's doing with the, I, I actually hate these things. Like they're a horrible idea because God forbid you actually have to talk to somebody. You can go pick up like goods and groceries and just walk out and using AI, it just gets, it, it debits your account. So when we have the ability to talk to people, we're one foot, uh, one foot away from each other in line and we're on our phones. We're not talking. And now that we have to do social distancing, we're six feet away from each other and we're all looking at each other going, this is really awkward. I want to talk to you. So it's like when we have the opportunity to talk and interact, we don't. This it's pretty culture. wild. Or just, I feel like such, I, I did the same thing, by the way. Such like kind of a, maybe an American thing to do, right? When someone says you can't do something, everybody's out trying to fucking do it, right? Like, stay home, everybody. Like, enjoy the TV that you always sit in front of. And play the <laughs> no, I want to go outside with everybody else. So tell me what yeah. Well, it's, it's this weird. So you know, have you heard of proxemics? There's yeah. actual science behind this, right? There's these three different zones or whatever. So it's like why I always end up in the middle of the, you know, you're, when you're the middle guy in the elevator, everybody always takes the sides and you're the middle guy. And it's violating that really weird zone and yep. because you can't escape it because you're in this moving box, yeah. you, everyone just averts their eyes, right? So this is such an interesting exercise well, sociologically. Just, just, uh, just to piggyback on that thought for a second, yeah. get on this rabbit hole a bit. So our, our co-founder at the company that I work at now, a guy named Jeremy Balenson, who runs uh, the Virtual Human, Inter- Human Interaction Lab at Stanford, he just actually posted a uh, piece at, at the end of the last week, I think on Friday, so like April 3rd or whatever, an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, basically talking about how like the Zoom fatigue phenomenon, right? Now that we're all on Zoom, like we're still experiencing some of the same like 
you know, with that phenomenon you described in the elevator, but in the elevator, we don't have to look at people. On Zoom, you start looking down the whole time. It's gonna be pretty fucking weird. So we have yeah. like we're just constantly vigilant with our social interactions on Zoom. You can't really look away. So if it's like a meeting, right? You got six people on, everybody's kind of like trying to be diligent, pay attention. So you can't look down, you can't like make take notes, right? So there could be this other like interesting phenomena going on, uh, which is anyway. I can't so, so you asked a really kind of interesting and probably important question. And I, I haven't quite answered yet, but I'll give you my answer. So the question is, where, where am I getting my information from? And it's, I'm trying to build my own model. And, and I, I would encourage everybody to do the same. So the, I think, the, again, the worst thing you do is say, this person is looking at these four sources. So just, that would be easy. That would be nice if we could trust that. We just don't live in that world anymore. The world we live in now is you forage for information and you use your critical thinking skills to work backwards, right? Become a pseudo expert. Learn what you need to know. What what are the important things in this case? For me, it's like, who's dying? Is there a demographic? Knowing that there could be, right? Asking questions, not just saying, oh, here's a death, like death rate. Just look at death rate. Here's a death rate. Well, that doesn't tell you everything you need to know because I start asking questions. How does that death rate apply to me? What does it say about people that are 18 to you know 40, if that's a demographic, or you know, 30 to 40 or five, 45 or whatever the demographic is. And if they break them out accordingly, look at those death rates, look at them by country, look at other factors that can you like our, that's what epidemiologists are doing, right? They're doing it in a much smarter way because they know the factors to really dig into. But if you can get in any of that information, and I think some of those outlets have been good about reporting that, the nuance, right? And then of course, I look at the academic journals, which are obviously gonna have a lag to them, but not a lot actually. So there's some really good papers coming out. I think we shared one, Science put out a pretty interesting article about the role of testing, right? And why like South Korea has some advantages there. And I just saw a picture of one of their testing that looks incredible. And how, and, and that's gonna be so critical, right? In, in our ability to actually have some sort of like semblance of a normal life is to be able to have testing. Otherwise, this goes on indefinitely until vaccines have been distributed amongst uh, everyone. So like, that's what I would encourage people to do is just, you know, think about the information you need to have to be able to make a decision, you know, about yourself or whatever decision you want to make, and then start thinking about who are the people who are going to give me the right information accordingly. And it's not going to be one type of person. There's going to be different people for different types of information. And then the data, don't just look at, and again, that's why I was so frustrated at that CNN article is don't just look at 346 and it's like, fuck, it's really bad in Italy. Like, what does that mean? What does 300 mean proportionally yeah. over what period of time? Like, these are questions anybody can ask. I don't think you need to really be an expert. Just think about, like, be a little bit critical and dig in, be cynical. If anything, I would say it's like the skeptics, right? This is where they come in, like start questioning why that's useful, questioning the meaning of that number, start breaking it down. And that's like the critical thinking training. And I don't know any other way to say that. Like I was never formally taught that, but I had to do that in my academic studies. You did as well. So as I much- did it as well. And it's, it's funny because you're a scientist. I would say I'm scientifically trained. I mean, it's technically our doctor scientists, yes. But I would say it's probably more accurate to say I'm scientifically trained. So like long following those guidelines when solving a problem is something that we're used to and expected, right? But what's really interesting and very difficult, especially in this case, but in any case, when it comes to someone coming into the hospital with, with an ear infection, and it's those people who go, I, I go, hey, it's viral. 
right? It's fine. It'll be self-limited. Don't worry about it. But you know that they're going to go, are you sure? Can I get an antibacterial or whatever? And you're trying to have this conversation with somebody who's going through, going over anecdotal evidence and you're going through scientific evidence. So that's a very hard bridge to, uh, to, to cross with people who aren't trained that way. So it's the guy outside of Whole Foods that says, hey, GMO is bad. Don't you, don't you want this organic thing? And and you know they're well-intentioned, what they're trying to get at. But when you actually ask them why, how do you know that? You know, yeah. and this is the problem. And that, that's fine when you're talking about eggs or whatever. But now when we're talking about something with such higher impact, and this is in, there's another interesting aspect of this. Well, before I even say that, let me just say, I think I'm going to go to CNN's defense a little bit here, but I, just to see what their motivation is. Because I get what you're saying, because those numbers clearly need a lot of context. We don't even have the data, reliable data sources, you know, including, for example, what you're referring to as the denominator of who actually has been exposed to this, right? And that's like antibody tests and stuff will help us determine that. But I think there's some fundamental issue when it comes to car accidents, for example, which we take a lot of time and energy to try to prevent that because people can visualize that. But when it comes to something that's microbial or viral, it's so difficult to visualize what it is. It's like a nameless, faceless enemy that you can't see, you can't feel. It's like high blood pressure. It's like a doctor's telling you to take this pill for something that just doesn't really, you don't feel bad every day. And I think what CNN and those people are trying to do is humanize the effects yeah. of this, right? I totally appreciate that. Like, I and again, this I didn't mean to go on a no, no, you know, tirade. This is just for me. I had to like kind of tune sure. out more, less because the information what isn't. So the information is is valid. So by all accounts, everything I read more or less seems like they're reporting accurately, factually. But again, it's like the misleading, clickbaity titles that I resent, and they get frustrated. New York Times not exempt from this either. A lot of news outlets are doing this, right? And I, I think some of them are probably like more malintent than others. But even Fox, uh, no, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, but we like we. I'm, I'm not even. Fox, yeah, I'm talking about like news sources that I would often go to every day, and I'll click on NPR. I feel like they're a little bit more guarded, but but it's tough. So it's more for me. It's just frustrating because I know what happens, and I know that it spins people up, and then you can see the same story and how it's getting passed around Facebook and. That's for me. That's noise. Those the fortunate for better or worse, those people aren't directly affecting my lives, but they kind of are, right? Like, people are basing information, and they'll just take a little piece. Of, look at Governor of Florida. Let's let you think of them. Like it's yeah, they're they're an essential business. They're literally killing people by letting. So, what is the motivation behind that? Because every time I see these things, Louisiana, Mardi Gras, Florida, right? And you get they they get asked. Uh, on TV, they're like, why aren't you closing the beaches? I, I never get an answer. What is the answer? What is their motivation for not doing it? It can't world, be ignorance. I mean, they I, can't. I think it might, I think that's maybe where we are in this country. I mean, not to take it to a dark place, but like, it might be where we are as a country. We've systematically underfunded education for a long time. And I think those, those kind of chickens are coming home to roost, as it were, when it comes to our leadership and just the fundamental negligence that you can have. And it speaks to their base. Look, if people were clamoring, for governors to shut shit down, they would, but these people aren't, right? They're like these communities, there's variants everywhere. I don't, you know, not all people, not everywhere in these communities, but like preponderance, right? Overwhelming majority of them clearly are okay with it. And the governor's kind of supporting it. So, you know, and encouraging you. And so I, I think it's, I think it's short-term thinking, speaking to their base, right? It's like, they have an, I'm just speculating totally here, but like I would yeah. imagine they have an incredibly religious base 
in most of those kind of southern areas to the point where they believe potentially that their base believes that the religion itself or their deity is going to actually help them. I mean, it's not relegated to Christianity. I just you know read some story about where Orthodox Jews are having to do the same thing. They're fine. They're only now getting around to kind of closing temple and stuff. So in some of these hardcore religious areas, you're, you're seeing the kind of the negative effects of, and I get it, like people want to get together and worship. That's a place of solace for a lot of people. It's communities. Yeah. So, so this isn't dismissing, right, just to make sure that we're just intending, not the role of religion, but certainly like in the time when you know how things are happening, you at least have certainty around the fact that we know how viruses are spreading. We know how coronavirus is spread. And we know a little bit about how COVID is spreading now with all this information and data. Like, why? There's just, it's, it seems gratuitous and unnecessary to your point, incredibly short-sighted. And I think We'll see how this plays out in the elections, you know, kind of upcoming. I think this is going to do some lasting damage to people's kind of faith and in, in those leaders. And hopefully maybe, you know, moving past this kind of post-fact world, because, you know, when Donald Trump got elected, people are like, well, we live in a post-fact world. People just make up their own facts and they believe in what they believe in. I think there's that phenomenon going on for sure. I think at some point you're going to be faced with incontrovertible evidence and it's coming in the form of coronavirus and specifically COVID-19 deaths. And people are going to know a lot of people who have experienced some negative impact of it. And it's not going to be made up. And it's not spread off. It's like, you yeah. know, it's going to hit. It's going to, so you talk about the visceral effects, like car accidents. Well, that's the manifestation. It's not that you can't see it. And to some of these media outlets credit, they've done pretty good jobs of trying to make visuals so, so that people can understand things like, contagion spread, viral spread, and how that works, and that there's these nonlinear effects. I don't want to go exponential because that's just a oversimplification of potentially what's happening of a misunderstanding of how all these mechanics of how the virus spreads. But, but more kind of poignant is the fact that, look, it's not like one person out there in the community can only do so much damage. It's, no, they do a little bit of damage, and then it just amplifies down the chain. And that's what people are trying to convey. Just that simple thought is important. Visuals help, but I think, unfortunately, the only thing that's going to work for some of these folks, and it will work, it's just, like I said, unfortunate, is when they start seeing other people that they know or friends of family members or families of, you know, friends, et cetera. The visceral impact of just the pain. It's, yeah, it's just, it's sometimes lack of action or, or, or caution. Yeah, so yeah. this is the weird thing about the Asian, the, it, no, I can speak because I'm Asian. This is the weird thing that's always, we've always struggled with. My sister and I used to talk about this. So I'm going to go through, it'll take me 10 seconds to flesh this out, but it's an interesting thing. South Korea and Taiwan, as we know, took measures very quickly based on previous experience with, with pandemics like this, and they put things in place. And they also have a small population, small enough to where they can institute the right kind of measures quickly and get those things out, right? Even China, when you have drones flying QR codes, right, um, over populations of people with megaphones saying, hey, do this and do that. So there's some aspect of this, which is like the cultural conformity. Conformity and obedience and voice of authority is important right, in these cultures. I can say that in, in the Indian culture for sure, and I'm sure we've all seen an aspect of that when it comes to like Japan. Like when you're in a country and you don't have to lock your doors when you park your car, when you go to work, you're like, well, why would we? No one's gonna steal something from me because like it's a shame culture. And I, I wonder how much of that plays into when you institute things like social distancing or getting tested or wearing masks in public, how much is that cultural part of it play into it? But then the other part of that, that equation is really weird to me because it's the exact opposite. Because there's this, in Indian culture, for example, which a lot of Indi Indians are Hindu, and I'm not want to generalize, but 
uh, at the same time, there's this fatalistic part of it. And I saw this when, and when I saw um, some people in Mexico being um, interviewed as well, because they're like, why are you having a party right now? And they're like, you know, if it's my day to die, I'll die. It's fine. I'm not worried. I'm like, where does that come from? And how does that exist in the same culture that's like Japan or South Korea or India, right? Highly educated, respectful of each other, but at the same time, where does that come from? How is that different from the United States, you think? Yeah, I, it's a great question. So, I mean, I'm, I'm only speculating. I'm certainly no anthropologist and I'm not an expert kind of Asian cultures or East Asian cultures. But, but yeah, the stereotype obviously is that living in a collectivist society doesn't, it seems antithetical to everything American. We look at that and we're like, completely reject that individualism etc and i think we're bearing the consequences of that individual sure if we're all dealing with the same deck but we're clearly not and i think right. when within other kind of collectivist cultures and, I, and i'll say this too it's just like individualist cultures you know you looking out for someone else is not a, it's not individualism Right. It's not necessarily mutually exclusive from individualism, but it's not some it's not like a tenant that you would associate. And so when we think about certainly America and, and its foundings and kind of whatever cultural values we have shared, I don't know that we even share cultural values kind of across the country at this point, but that's um, adult that's a totally different podcast we had to have. <laughs> but like but like you and I were up, you know, and, and uh in kind of you know, urban somewhat urban suburban environments where there's a lot of people. And despite the fact that there's this idea of America that's, well, it's really up to you. You figure it out, like whether you accept or reject it, or that's true or not. Independent of that, I feel like those areas that have more people, the higher the density, the more people are looking out for each other. Because you're exposed to it every day and you just help out your neighbor, et cetera. And I, that's clearly not the case. So when you're on your own, in the you know 1820 Cheyenne Wyoming like making it on your own and you really had to figure everything out you had to build your own house and kill your own food um, that rugged individualism is celebrated because it does help survive in those conditions but it also doesn't lend itself to then maybe necessarily being thoughtful about your neighbors and I think a lot of the collectivist societies that highly densely populated areas of China Japan etc I would imagine that a lot of the thinking that's going on is like their neighbor and their kind of immediate surroundings or community is top of mind for them. And so they're doing things that are not just beneficial for them. They're doing things to kind of help further the culture. And you can think of like as a species, like that seems like it's going to be advantageous. And I guess there's a trade-off, right? If you want to get really hardcore evolutionary about it, like you're spending resources that are costing you stuff, but the group is you know, better off. And that's the whole idea of governments and syndicates in general, right? Which is putting your little effort in will be amplified if we kind of all do it toward the same collective goal. And union, I mean, there's a ton of examples of, of the way that that works, right? Unions being kind of another more tractable example, potentially. And the idea is like, we all pool our resources. It costs me a little, but the benefits are many because we're all striving toward the same goal. And so I see that happening at least maybe just through my lens and in, in other kind of cultures where they're a little bit more adherent. Now that, Collectivism obviously can be used for, for evil, right? We've seen that too in a lot of these same countries under dictatorships, posing under 
communist ideologies uh, where they can get a whole bunch of people to do something that's really not great, right? For the Well, it, no, I think that's a great point. I think I would add to that too. There's, there's another way that, that really undermines the, the authenticity, the authority, and probably effectiveness of being, of considering, of expanding your tribe from that like 10, 15 people that you had, you know, a million years ago to the entire sub part of Manhattan, which is the cheaters, right? And I think we're seeing that now. So it's all you need, you know, it's that tit for tat approach, right? So all you need in this to, to kind of undermine and ruin this collectivism, hey, I'm going to look out for you, you're going to look out for me, is the one person who goes into Walmart and buys all the toilet paper. And you're like, oh, crap. Okay, what do we do with those people now? So if they're going to do it, I'm going to do it. So it's like, there seems to be some, I feel, I feel, I'm trying to think of the ways that we try to avoid that, right? Where we go, hold on, we all get it. We all see, we're going to buy what we need. Now here in San Diego, I, what I've noticed is everyone seems to be pretty kind uh, to each other. It's just anecdotally. So I'm sure there are other places in that. And I've seen the YouTube videos. I've seen the Instagram and the TikTok stuff where people are literally getting fights over bar soap and, and, and food and stuff like that at Costco and stuff. So I, mean, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, you'd have to really be in these places and experience them for long periods of time to know what's really going on. But my guess is it's, it's really just a small minority of people everywhere. I was So this phenomenon of cheating, this phenomenon of trying to abuse the system in a way, and it's not just the, it's hoarding. It's really, it's the people charging $15 for Purell. Like, how do we eliminate that? It seems like there's no downside to eliminating that behavior. Yeah, I mean, I think we're flexing some of the muscles that we probably used to use a lot more in older societies or kind of more extreme ones and kind of the uh, hunter-gatherer societies like shame being one of them, outcast, make people feel socially isolated, no kind of connection to the current social isolation, but like, you know what I mean? Like just- so you think that's just a gene that exists in everybody and in some people it's expressed more readily than others? Yes, yeah, so, well, it's cheating gene, it's a really good question. I, I, you know, we know so little about the genomics of behavior, but, but I think that you could argue that, yeah, maybe everybody has a propensity to some extent, maybe it's not exactly the same, but depending on your environment, like how that kind of type uh, comes to be expressed may look very different people, but maybe the proclivity is always there. But then there's people who probably have more extreme, like they, they talk about sociopaths and psychopaths and how they just are you know, completely dismissive of- They're oblivious kind of, to the, the yeah. social elements, right? It's not something that's, that's ever really accounted for in their mind. Sociopaths just have a knowledge that they should be <laughs> and they try to deal with the psychopaths. That's right. So you- so if I can take you back just a little bit. So you talked about creating this construct for yourself to where you can try to make the best decisions for you and your friends and your immediate surroundings and what you should do on a daily day basis and also what you should plan for. So let's talk about these models that are out there. So you clearly to make that construct work for you, you're seeing some real errors in stuff um, that's out there. So you mentioned one of it, which is the sensationalism. What else should we be looking out for? What throws up red flags in your mind when you're seeing not just pictures of people dying in the ICU, but uh, YouTube videos of like Thunderfoot putting together models, people like Fauci talking about the data, people trying to have, have, you know, create an earnest effort to yeah. present information that they feel oh. is, is uh, accurate. A good place to start, and you were, you were touching on this before, is like, what information do you trust? And you know, my, again, my, I'll stand by, just go forward for information, get it from who you think would be giving you information, like the expert that would be associated with that field, giving you that information, and then do some critical thinking to connect the dots on your own. I know that's, under, that's hard, and that's an endeavor, but I think if you really want to do it, quote unquote, the best way possible, that's, that's probably the good way to do it. But in lieu of that, I think just doing other simple things, other simple heuristics, like what's the motivation? 
right? What, what, I mean, just again, something that I learned early on from my dad, just thinking about what other people are thinking about, like what's, what do they have to gain or what do they have to lose in these situations will help contextualize a lot of how you should be viewing uh, information from them and listening and making decisions based on whatever information they're giving you. So for-profit media, I think is already a little bit biased. I already have a little bit of a cynicism. So I look at kind of government websites, right? The, the, these unsung heroes that are, they get paid jack shit and their funding is getting constantly cutting, cutted, but they're still out there, right? Fighting the good fight every day. And so even if they're a little misled, at least I know they're not doing things from a kind of you know, malintent. And I, that's a big thing that I look for. So even though like I can parse out and help separate signal from noise within, I just want to focus on those people who I know have like the right pro-social motivation to begin with, CDC, et cetera. So what do you do when you have people, you know, I'm sure you've been, have you been following this crazy you know, Twitter fight, it's, 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 it's grown beyond that. And I think I sent you a link to this the other day, but Nassim Taleb and Nate Silver. So these are two independently, very highly respected people who have different ways, but modeling data in other domains, right? Not in specifically the virology space or epidemiology, but these other places when it comes to sports and in the stock market and stuff, how do you take their opinion? They're not virologists per se, but they're, you know, self-acclaimed data experts. How, what am I supposed to do with them, right? Like, who, who do I believe? How, you know, do you, what's your take on this whole thing? Yeah. Their approaches to modeling this. So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. So you, you asked the question of modeling and like, that's, a, you know, that's a lot of what we're dealing with right now is like how to understand the impact. I happen to have some background in creating, you know, predictive models, right? Not all predictive models are created equally and, you know, different data types matter, but there are things that are fundamental that you can start to dig into. So before I answer the, the kind of, it's been seen, uh, Nate thing, I think it's important to kind of also understand like, you know, Fauci came out and again, buried in the bottom of an article, right? It's not the shit you lead with because that's not the click stuff, but it's, it's the most important. Yeah. Fauci's out there saying like, yeah, 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 you know, Imperial College model, yeah, 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 we predict these many things at the very bottom, but initial assumptions are important. Mechanisms of spread are important. We are just don't know a lot right now. So we're assuming these things. And these are important parameters in the model. And importantly, when you tweak these parameters, even a little bit, they make wildly different predictions, right? And so no one talks about that because that's not certainty and that's not, you know, information people can actually like want or want, want to click on and easily digest. And I think I, I trust those guys to know that. And so when they're disseminating information, I think they're trying to think about how people would react to that like nuanced, subtle information and just give people like, here's a recommendation based on the model. There's a model, trust us. And that's what you were saying before. Fauci's like data, trust me kind of thing. And I know better than that. But I also like, I'm thinking the next level beyond, which is well, but I don't think he would offer something while maybe it's incorrect. He's probably on the airing on the side of let's do it, what's best for the goal at hand. The goal being like, let's not make people kind of force them into hard choices about who gets a ventilator. That can only go on for so long, though. Obviously, if these that's models, an unsustainable, horrible, tragic. It's it's a, it's unsustainable, but it's also unsustainable for everybody else. Like at the end of the day, the other thing that I was talking about is okay. But if you're just going to collapse the American economy to not make people make a few hard decisions, you're going to have a lot bigger health crisis on your hand than you have right now, right? With all these people who are not going to have jobs and places to live. So I I have to think that some people are thinking about that now. Whoever's pulling the trigger on all these things, the final decider. I don't know who that is. They seem to be leaving it up to a lot of local governments, which is scary, but we'll, I guess we'll see in the days to come. And I think Fauci, you just see it in his eyes, like incredibly exhausted at just like, why the fuck are we just letting the states do whatever they want? There needs to be federal mandates, but he can't go That's out right. 
right? So because Trump's, you know, got this like states' rights kind of pseudo-libertarian base, like whatever kind of clown show is going on over there that he has to cater to. At least that's like you said, motivations, right? There's there's probably motivations that are visible and other ones that are we can speculate on. Yeah, and I, honestly, like, I, but I also like like the idea generally that we want to leave it up to the individuals, but it just doesn't seem like the decision-making is being made in good faith and it doesn't seem like it's being made with good information and good decision-making. So if I could trust the people who are making decisions, I would love the idea of handing things off to local governments. I think people can fend for themselves under like right circumstances, right circumstances being they know enough and they're making critical thinking decisions, but that's just, I don't, I just don't see that happening a lot. But anyway, well, back Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go for it. No, I was just, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of frustration in myself and also you and other, I guess, but I would say, if I may be so bold, intellectuals, including like Eric Weinstein, who's saying, who's just kind of, you know, I think he saw, he had a tweet out that said, this is what happens when you let the kids run the show or whatever, let the grownups get in. What do we do here? Do we kick the governors out and go, this is not the time for I, that kind I, of authority and we should really get people who are experts and have them be the decision makers? I mean, you're asking me personally what I would like to do and I would like to think that people could figure this out on their own. I like that idea of America. That's why I like kind of the individualism part of the country that we live in, that idea that people can make their own decisions and under the right circumstance. But I also think we're running up against some pretty robust human frailties in terms of the ability to make decisions under uncertainty and certainly looking at and cherry picking information. I wonder to your, to your other kind of thought earlier, what if we went back to the three channel news media and what a difference that may have made, right? In the kind of world that we live in, would you really have people acting the way that they do now? If, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of trade-offs with having your news only come from three outlets and maybe not all valid and very kind of controlled information. But I wonder if yeah. we were better off in that case. But so, so I'm hesitant. I, I don't want yeah. the government, everybody wants federal government to, to do as little as they need to do, but it's just that people can't take care of themselves. And it's pretty clear there's evidence. This, this is kind of where we are in this world right now, right? Because, you know, there's evidence and then there's whatever else is going on. Well, there's level, there's both levels of evidence. Equally, they're, they're kind of being equally weighted. It's, you can't just say whatever you feel like, and that's all of a sudden equally as valid as what has gotten here, us here over the last 8,000 years, or at least, you know, 4,000, yeah. which is this method of critical thinking that we call science, right? And you're just going to abandon that and do what? And like, that's the enlightenment. All these things that we supposedly revere are now being tossed out the window in America these days. And I, I just hope that's not the case with what we're seeing in the decision-making with um, this recent pandemic. But, but if that's the case, then I would rather have people personally in charge that are using science than those that are not. Uh, this seems a little bit sickle to me. If you if you think of like you you mentioned evolution uh, several times, and I think within fifteen years of Darwin talking about natural selection as a as one of the main mechanisms of evolution, right for for biology, it was pretty wide, widely accepted. Which if you look now, it's like we flipped that in a weird way in some countries, right? So it's there's some weird cyclical nature to this where these different competing factors are shaping people's thinking. But let me throw a weird wrench into this. That's probably something that I wouldn't have thought about five years ago. Maybe you and I wouldn't have had this conversation 10 years ago. But I was thinking, and uh, this is going to be a really weird wrench, but I'm going I'm to bring it back to our conversation here. And I don't know if you watched that show Westworld sure, yeah. uh, on HBO. And I think one of the most, like this season, in the, the world of Westworld, in this future 100 years from now thing, it's, you know, sitting in the boardroom of companies and not just people, but it's like an AI machine, right? So there's like literally computers who are calculating 
who knows what, right? You know, 90 billion layers of, of, of deep learning networks or, or whatever else. And it's like, hey, what do you think? Should we trade the stock or should we sell or whatever? You know, how, is, how are those other thinking systems going to play into this decision making? So can you imagine this? And I'm just thinking this out loud. I mean, can you imagine a situation where it's not just Fauci and Trump, it's like Fauci, Trump, and Super Doctor, right? Who's up there like, how, what, is, what is AI's role now and in the future? And do you think there's going to be one when it comes to like, well, we can't really figure this out, but us augmented, our intelligence augmented by these systems that we've created, which we don't really understand a lot of the times how they work, but as long as they get the right answer, there's these black boxes. Do we incorporate that in? What role would those play? Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild time. So again, I think we're at this weird, funky state. So I, for whatever reason, I draw this parallel where at this, because longevity is another parallel kind of the idea that we can go on living forever, potentially under the right circumstances and that we're inching our way there. We're in this state right now. So we're not in the AI state where AI is autonomous and can make those decisions. And we know that they're making decisions as we would gauge them better than anybody else. We're like en route. And in route means we're in this weird fumbly stage. We're probably more at the beginning if there is a beginning. I don't know if it makes sense, but like, yeah, we're fumbly, right? So like we have information and we know it's imperfect, but it's better than maybe what we had. And so how do we fold that information? I, I liken it to the longevity kind of thing too that we're after, which is like, we've made people live longer, substantially. Of course, you know this by now. Thousands of years, people were very probably binomially distributed or even, I don't know, probably other segments of distributions where you either died at childbirth right. or you died in kind of fighting a lion when you were 20 or you lived until you were like 50 and died of some infectious disease. And that was it, right? And you were in 70 was out of the question more or less, right? That was, that was crazy. That'd be like 120 now, potentially. That's like you were some deity at that point, right? This is a couple thousand yeah. years. Yeah. And that was like pretty steady state for a long time. And then all of a sudden, technology advancements, medicine, knowledge. We're able to keep people alive longer. And the question is, was well, is that good? We're kind of in route to this idea that we can keep people alive for indefinitely, potentially, but it's fumbly right now because we can keep people that are alive. They're 90, but like the quality of life's not awesome. Are they right. walking? They're on a ventilator, like all these things. And so I, I look at AI is the same way. It's, we have information, but we don't really know how to use it. Is it good? Is it like, how, is it, a, is it generalizable? So I use this model and it, told me what hotel I should book, but now can I use that to actually make a medical decision? Like probably not. And so it's just this really weird, awkward time for AI. And so current, so you're asking about the current state. In current state, I just, it's just, you know, part, a big part of this is how people use information. You know this, right? You've worked on things where you were giving doctors, in fact, probabilistic information, additional information that they didn't have, where they didn't have to do a lot of the inventory and kind of triage situations. And then thinking about like, well, how do people use that information? And would they use that information? And what if it contradicts whatever their gut says? You know, like all these weird kind of human things that all of a sudden are, are on display because of this new way of which they're we're giving them information, they're making decisions. So I think that's a whole field of study. Yeah. The whole discussion is wild. But like, yeah, like maybe in the distant future, but that also presumes a lot about our AI and the way that we can actually create AI to do these things well. And to, you know, I mean, another kind of huge topic in AI is this idea of like goals, right? Like depends on the goal. And if you are able to set a specific goal for AI and they can adhere, the AI can adhere to it, maybe. But I think the goals are often so ill-defined because in our decision-making, the goals are ill-defined. Look at what we're doing now. Like 
the goal is. You guys, right. you guys go 10, 10 random people. Why are, you, why are we self-isolating? You're going to get 10 answers, probably none of which say anything about the fact that we're trying to not overload hospitals that don't have enough ventilators or enough beds, right? They're all like, well, we don't want to catch this. Then that's critical to define the goal. And then beyond that, but is the goal really to improve societal health? Because are we doing that? We don't even know if we're doing that by keeping everybody at home, slowly grinding the economy down, the world economy, like maybe that's going to do more lasting damage. So I don't know, like in AI, if you're going to have an AI make a decision, it has to incorporate all these things and it has to have the kind of quote unquote best interest in mind of society, which we can't even operationalize. So then you want to hand that off to an AI, but is it going to have its own goals? Like these are all like very important. You say that, you know, it's funny because you have to start somewhere because you can take steps forward when you can't, when you don't, when you can't necessarily define the exact parameters, right? So, you know, the AI stuff that you and I had worked on before in previous iterations of companies and things like that, you know, it was the diagnostics problem. This is a problem that's happening now. It's really relevant now because What's interesting is everyone's so focused on COVID for obvious reasons, but uh, this didn't replace the other thousands of people with bacterial pneumonia, heart attacks, diabetes, and you know, kidney failure, right? The, this is on top of all that. So right now there's no doctor in the world. You know, every single doctor in the world is terrified of missing a COVID patient. What I worry about is not the COVID patients. I worry about the people with chest pain or appendicitis who are being triaged incorrectly and are going to be put in a hallway somewhere and then die from a from, from a wrong diagnosis. And diagnosis in medicine is really one of the, it's, it's like setting, it's like if you're gonna sail from here to Mars, you gotta set the first direction uh, with, with high confidence because that, if that compass is wrong, you're really screwed. If you get that initial direction correctly, then you can start course correcting. And that's what, you know, when we worked on AI for, for the diagnostic problem, we had three goals, right? Because it's like where it could help. It's like, there's really only three diagnostic problems in medicine. I mean, if you, to be honest, one, is just mess, catching our mistakes, just being humans and fallible, right? With our biases and the fact there's time pressures and things like that, we just make those mistakes, which are just stupid. So we send people home saying, hey, your abdominal pain is just gastroenteritis and it's appendicitis. The second problem I would say is the house MD problem. To be honest, this really isn't a problem, but it does make for great dram dramatic television, right? It's like the crazy rare thing. And you can go Google that and find that actually pretty easily. The third problem is the one that's the real problem. It's that this, this playing the probability game, right? It's that the person with the stomach pain yeah. who comes in, it's like really common diseases that have a spectrum and how they present symptomatically. And so you're expecting to go, well, it's probably just something in the stomach. But if it's a female in the 50s who present a little bit differently statistically and they're having a heart attack, so it's the common stuff that presents uncommonly. And that's where the AI stuff can really help. So, you know, whether it's helpful here in this case or not, but it was an, is an, indep an independent decision maker as part of policymaking. I think it's an interesting question because in yeah. these features that we have in TV, we see these things and we're kind of used to them from a sci-fi level. But I've just, you know, it's very hard to incorporate it in. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of um, of Jonathan Nolan and, and you know the work that they do on the show. And that was like, I mean, I was you know not that I'm the number one futurist or anything, but yeah, I tend to like to think about these things and not even thinking it wasn't even on my radar to think about that as a thing. And that's that seems like such a thing that would exist in the world is to have right. a, basically a machine part of the decision making process, and then of like. And all, then the real work starts, right? It's like all the protocols that you would develop around, like how do we incorporate the machines? Like, should, does the machine always trump? What are the conditions? And then again, I can't imagine any model would ever be flawless all the time. So there's probably so much context dependency about, well, what do we know about the decision at hand and the data being used? 
and maybe that should drive how much we believe in the model. And this gets into kind of some of the points about modeling, which is like those initial assumptions. Look, if we have a model that we know is tried and true for that exact data set for which now we're using that information to make predictions. So for example, maybe it's specific enough to say, okay, I developed an AI model for a predictive algorithm more or less for who's a COVID patient, who's not, just based on presenting symptoms along with some demographic information. And I did that in certain parts of Los Angeles with mostly white people. And now I go take that model and try to apply it to some Chinese neighborhood in the Bronx. And like everything's out the window, right? Because all these assumptions that might be really critical to that model. And so like saying that that's going to be applicable. And so like, again, thinking about like where the, where they're going to be model limitations, right? And like how that model's being used and applied. I, I don't want to say it's nothing. Like it may be useful, it may be a useful start. But if you don't even have the kind of right homogenous data set to, to kind yeah. of go one case to generalize to another, like these are just some of the frailties of AI. And this is why everybody talks now about general AI. And this is, what, you know, Elon Musk's after in terms of just, you know, generalized intelligence for, for AI, et cetera, so it can account for these things. But even a seemingly simple case like that, I think would be really hard for someone who didn't know to say, oh, okay, well, we have a model to de detect COVID. Let's just get it over here as quick as possible. It's like, wait a minute. I know there's some really smart people. on a totally different data set, you know? Yeah, I mean? there's some smart people really worried about that. For so just, again, I, I could be doing the same cognitive biases that we talked about earlier in the conversation, which is I'm, I'm discounting the growth, exponential growth of these things. I'm just not worried about it, right? I mean, like I, I, I ran this, have you done this yet? I, I ran this uh, experiment on Alexa the other day. I asked it like 10 questions about coronavirus and it sucked whatever, on every single one of them. Whatever it's worth, I plugged my Alexa a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> So, so my, my, my cynicism knows no bounds, but. So how, how far would social media and things have to evolve to where you're trusting that information or something that can be updated that quickly over things like NPR or peer review journals? It's, it's almost like intractable, right? It's, I would have to know enough about the model, right? And at least like, at least the modeling approach, like the kind of general of the algorithms being used to develop the model and make predictions, the data that was used to develop the model. Because these, these, just for those that maybe aren't too familiar, these algorithms don't appear out of nowhere. It's not like there's a theoretician, mathematician in his basement or her basement sitting and working on these things independently. Like they get developed along with data because it's the data that allows us, that's why people talk about why there's value in data, is it allows us to be able to extract themes that we can then use about people or other things to make decisions in the future. So if we're seeing like common themes happening across all different kind of types of people for a particular goal, that goal is to diagnose COVID correctly, that's a thing that's really hard for a person to do, pretty tractable for a model to do. And then no, you, why'd you unplug the Alexa? I was trying to learn from you by recording all the stuff you're talking about. I'm not, I mean, sure. I don't, I'm not sure I wanted to learn what it, what it wants to learn from me. So again, thinking about the motivation and pro-social ambitions of Amazon, I'm not sure how much they, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe if they told me that, you know, we're doing this to, to enhance, you know, for, for people, for like older people, <laughs> I'd be like, 
social robots in the future and it's going to help them. Like maybe I'd be okay with that, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So just, to, uh, just if I could dive into a very technical question, just for the people inclined listening to this that, that really do want to do that deep dive, right? Where do we find, I mean, where do we find the assumption of these models? Are, they, are these things that are hidden in the footnotes? I don't know how accessible they are. I just don't think they exist. So unless someone's got like a patent and they're publishing the algorithm and some of the methodology, but even still, you just have to rely. So, I mean, that's where like the world of academia is, is a little bit better in that respect is anybody who's going to have a model has to publish the details of the model and have it peer reviewed and talk about where the data comes from, et cetera. So there's more faith, but when we talk about for-profit private industry, there's no obligation to do that. Right. And so, you just talk to someone and you see if you can trust them. And when they say things that are really vague, and if you ask more questions and they keep saying things that are really vague, that's probably a good reason to not be so trusting. But I feel there are companies who are trying to live this kind of academic ideals, right? So they're trying to do things in an open source way. I know a group right now that uh, has a whole, they're, you know, they're basically an investor, right? They're, they're the, VC oriented organization and they part of their kind of bent is to be uh, helping kind of companies and grow their their kind of data science and you know all the things you can do with data and, and develop algorithms and a lot of the stuff that they've developed they've made open source and so that gives you a good feeling that maybe they're in it for the right reasons for kind of more collegial knowledge sharing so other people can use them for applications even if they're for profit doesn't mean they're bad right like for profit right. they're bad but it, it does warrant you to say, well, I don't like, look at the company, look at the motivation. And so it's, again, it's about who you can trust that information because you're never going to get access to that detail. And even if you did, you wouldn't know what to do with it. So you do have to have somebody to break it down for you in words, like where did the data come from? How is the model built, et cetera? Those kind of things are helpful, but that's even a lot for the lay person. I just try to use as much contextual cues around you. Think about like, again, going back, what are, you, what are the assumptions that models are? So a lot of the COVID stuff, the good news there is like a lot of these companies that are creating these companies, a lot of individuals creating these models are not for profit, right? They're, they're often coming from government agencies, et cetera, academics. So they're, they're, you do have accessibility. So that's good there. But when we talk about Alexa's algorithm, you'll never know the answer to that. Um, I, don't even, I don't even think they are the, the AI is at a level now where I don't think they know the answer to that. That's to your point about the black box in nature. So then you start looking at like the outputs. And so right. you, just, you see it in different settings and you start building out your own like, well. So the output's useful and we just go with it, whatever. But there's yeah, probably a danger see, to not knowing. You what want to see it perform in different contexts. You want to see it like, okay, great. It's doing well with, with my shopping list. Is it going to do well with my music and, and predicting music hit? You know, and you see it. My heart attack later, yeah. The more faith you can have. But, uh, so, so when the dust settles with this, right? So there's some lessons to be learned for sure. Ones that are obvious already. Ones that we'll learn uh, as we go on and try to pick up the pieces. But there's, it's clear that this is going to happen again. It may not be a pandemic, right? So if we know, I think there was like a impact crater discovered like a couple of months ago. And it was like asteroids are on their way to hit Earth. And they had before. So whatever. There's these large scale events, these black, black swan events, right? Yeah. That happen that are going to shape our economies and our evolution going forward. So what do we learn from this? And that's a huge question. So there's many ways to answer that. But I think the one that I'd be really interested in hearing your opinion about is the prediction part of it. Like what happened to Google flu, right? Like why was that not 
perpetuated forward? And why is that not a part of why we detected this earlier? Now, you talked about you were looking at data sources for a very lucky reason, also because you're just a curious person and it's part of your job to know this stuff. But in January, February, whatever, like, why weren't we able to detect this much, much earlier? Yeah, I mean, part of it's probably, I don't know. I'm not, I think public health community can answer that much better than I ever could. But my guess is having been around some of those folks, like the surveillance mechanisms weren't there. And people talk about even like the teams that were in place initially that the Obama administration had left over were then basically disbanded by the uh, the Trump administration. So our ability to kind of survey the, the right kinds of data, I mean, that's where it all starts, right? It's like you got to capture information before you can actually do anything with it. And you got to capture the right kinds of data. And so it just doesn't seem like anybody had their antennas up for capturing the right kinds of data and then no resources to do anything with it. Even if they were looking at capturing data, where are the researchers, right? That can actually do something with it. Well, they're there now. They're working overtime. But they're not there initially because their research budgets get cut, et cetera. So I hope, I think a, I think a reasonable lesson that will come out of this, and this is, I don't think optimistic, I think this is completely reasonable, is people wanting that, kind of infrastructure, right? Because they see that not just as a, like, a, oh, here's some elitist academic people just doing whatever they're doing in their ivory tower. It's like, oh yeah, we need these people to help us. Information is critical. And it's, I think that's going to really hit home once you see this confluence of some of these states that we talked about. And you're going to see people die in numbers like rate-wise that you're not seeing probably in other parts of the country combined with testing. And people, I think at some point, some people will put two and two together. Like you, when it hits home, I think is when you start thinking. Like it's easy to just tune out and just watch Fox News or whatever you do and just take your information in a kind of whatever biased way that you do and believe the story, the narrative, and then with no consequence. Well, now it has great consequence. And I think people will be forced to reconcile that or, or we'll see. We'll see the limits of how people's irrational behavior can continue. But I think those things will kind of, it, you know, start to point to like, hey, we, we got to keep the funding going. We gotta like this is not just about research that's esoteric. This is about things that actually impact my life now. So that's I hope one of the lessons that come out of this. I have less hope for to be honest about because we've seen this before in smaller ways. Maybe this will be more impactful of like people's behavior, right? You like to think that like people will all of a sudden kind of be more vigilant and think about where they get their news because we're seeing such wide swaths of contrasting information. But I don't know if that's gonna change. Hopefully we this is like a hearkening back to critical reasoning and valuing intelligence again. Like we somehow just that went down completely down the drain with a large portion of this country. So using that as an American value and, the re- and again, connecting the dots for people like the reason we're probably so successful economically is because of that. That's one of the things that we do better than almost any other country is support that those innovations, those kind of the, and, and now you're seeing a large part of the country saying, yeah, no, we don't want that we want more wars or more military or whatever they're putting money, more tax cuts, right, for others, but at the cost of, of putting it into research and development and coming up with true innovation. So I, I hope generally on a macro scale that applies, but even if it's just very specific to the medical community, I think that would be a, a, a kind of a win coming out of this, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, this, the, the climate, the, the, or I should say the weather has changed to where when you look up in the sky, no one really wants to see the, the people in suits going up, uh, off to Wall Street, right? Like what, you know, the, the people you need around you right now, and in the, you're following from the raindrops are doctors and scientists and engineers and people who are those experts. So 
there are things I wanted to get to with, with uh, just from a neuroscience and cognitive behavioral standpoint about virtual reality, but I feel like that should probably be reserved for its own. We'd love to have you back on here because I think that's a whole discussion that you're uh, an expert yeah. in and also uh, you know, very relevant here because there are a lot of problems happening with anxiety and how people behave and the way we, the sociology of how we're dealing with this with social distancing and things. And I'm curious what the role of virtual reality and is, is that the most immersive way to deal with some of those problems, right? So is it, you know, and, and that's, I'd love to learn more about that, but I've, I've taken up a lot of your time. So I don't want to, if you've got the bandwidth, we can do it. But one, but I, if, if you'll promise me, we'll get to that at another podcast one of these days. Cause I really want to hear about Striver and the things you guys are doing. That's not just procedural training for VR, but more of an immersive emotional, you know, empathy training, right? On how to interact. So it's like that. Is that the is that the next evolution of of social interaction that could be super useful in times like this? And I think you're seeing some part of this with Zoom, but is it better than Zoom, right? Is it is it is it give us additional dimensions of interaction that are worth pursuing? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yeah. I think we're, you know, the ability to manipulate the environment, the quote-unquote real-world environment, and you're going to see this when there becomes a convergence of, you know, AR and VR is, you know, you're in your real-world environment, but you're selectively manipulating it in kind of a dramatically different way where, again, it feels real for all the reasons that, that can happen with virtual technologies. So I, I think so. And then I think we're going to learn a lot about people generally, right? These are like just big experiments that we're going to run that we've never been able to run before. And then I think the other Do you point, think it's going to reveal things that, that we're just not aware about the human species? Or do you think it's going to amplify things that we already thought were, were part of it and make some things worse, some things better? It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to know what you don't know. But like, but probably both, I would imagine. I think that's the hope, right? Is like, and really getting into this is the whole video game problem back in the uh, 80s and 90s, where it's like, hey, boys who play video games were first-person shooters, they actually don't go shoot people most of the time, <laughs> just because they yeah. do that. amplify some aspect of just being, a, I guess, a male in a Western society. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's, again, the ability to manipulate the environment in the ways that we can with these technologies will allow us to run some incredibly powerful sociological experiments. So I think the social psychology field in particular they ask amazing questions. They just never have the tools to answer them. So you're always dealing with these phenomena that maybe don't hold and under certain conditions. So like they're very isolated in these laboratory settings, even though they're trying to look at group dynamics, interpersonal dynamics. And all of a sudden now you get to do that in a kind of realistic, ecologically valid way, but you can actually control it enough. So you can actually study it and make inferences, et cetera. But, I, but you know, your point about anxiety, like they, there's definitely like, People are using these technologies to do things like to alleviate anxiety, mindfulness, et cetera. Because Even just you know, loneliness too, right? Loneliness. loneliness. In contact. Otherwise, you're just here. This is it. This is your VR tool independently, right? Like, and to your point, the computer, the internet, that's been a, a, a foray into that. And that's probably create, created some alleviation of that, but probably created its own problem because, again, it's imperfect information. When you start having uncertainty involved, that provokes its own sources of like anxiety, et cetera. So even though you're connecting, you have information, like I'm, this is still a, a fraction of what it would be in terms of the information that I would get interacting with you in person. And so you lose that, right? And I don't know. I think there's some good and some bad. And We'll see how it washes out. So being able to get like in a virtual space that kind of replicates all of that sufficiently. That's like, you know, do we, do we need to develop the next version of this, you know, Sims pandemic, right? Where you're just watching people play it, right? And do the, do the politics of it and be the, the victims of the disease. Like, does that tell us more about how people really interact in the real world? With it? 
Yes. Yeah. No, it, question, and, it right? and, and I think the, the final thing is using it as a tool for education. So having people understand what's really going on, why the, these recommendations are being made the way they are, and then seeing the world around them. So it'd be great to be able to talk to people and interact with meaningful and people in other places that are experiencing the same thing and you know, information uh, transfer between different kind of groups of people and communities. I think all that stuff's going to be uh, really fostered uh, in a big way by these technologies in a way that it's just not the same jumping on a random Zoom. And the reticence people have, the, the chat roulette days or like whatever kind of new thing. Second life. I remember, you know, back and yeah. Right? Like, and, and so the reluctance for people to engage, most people engage in that. So like maybe once, you know, these technologies really proliferate, you're going to see these inclinations to interact with kind of people they don't know other people like communities i don't know because there's tools to do that now but people don't do it so maybe the technologies that are coming out now will help encourage that to be a little bit more mainstream it's, it's very fault tolerant right? you can make mistakes as a person in a game like that or in a situation like that and see the consequences where you couldn't do that in real life because the, the stakes are too high and there's there's real world consequences i i really want to get into that at, at one point we got to spend an hour or something talking with because i want to see demos i want to see what you guys are working on but let me let me ask you a final question i guess just to leave everyone with so this next week coming forward, what's your routine for, for this construct you were talking about, how you are, you're going about getting data and making the right decisions? What's your, what, 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 do you want to, what do you want to tell people? Is, is, and it doesn't have to be necessarily the right way, but the, the way that's right for you, there's probably a lot of parallels between that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just adding data, right? So I now have this kind of, so like after reading whatever I read and sorting through all the different you know, reports that are out there and, and certainly kind of data that's being put out, contextualizing that data. I think you mentioned something about diagnosis. I'm trying to figure out, right now, I'm trying to figure out, can we even trust the death rate, right? Because are those appropriately labeled deaths? They're attributing them to COVID-19, but now there's about a lot of information coming out saying like how those like labeled data, as we would call them in the, the model training world, that are coming out now that may be fallacious, right? Like, so we can't even trust the- yeah. The, fatalities. The, like someone died from COVID-19. It's like, well, maybe, but maybe they, it was a other condition. Bacterial super infection or something. They, yeah. had, they, had a, they had a test done. It was positive. But was that really the cause of death? Like there's a ton of people with positive tests that aren't dying either just because maybe they don't have some underlying condition. And so if, is that right? And is that the right way to look at it? So just like even uncovering that, try to get a grip on that. And then, you know, obviously now we're getting kind of a temporal look. So now it's not just like, day-to-day -day updates on the numbers it's like how are things unfolding over time because now we're introducing these interventions curious to see how these interventions go but again knowing that there's going to be differences and ex probably expected differences in places like new york and la and then also like laggy places like so chicago's a big city it's pretty dense but it's laggy right it didn't have the access to maybe international folks like other cities did early on and the, and the sheer number of uh, or maybe it did and we, you know those are multi-factor reason yeah and so like, you know, all those things. And then I'm looking, obviously, like coincidental to that is like what the, what the White House is doing and what they're saying to some extent, just because, you know, seeing how they're dealing with, with the uncertainty information, not well, but then what the CDC is doing and kind of like Dr. Fauci and like all that updating and updating the thinking there. And they're saying things like, well, for this to work, but then I wonder why they're saying that. So then I look at the models and the models are like project, okay, but what are those models based on? If you start tweaking some of those parameters, which is like the initial infection rate, like are those, can those go back to normal? But at the end of the day, like I have to figure out what's important to me. What's important to me is like knowing 
when things are going to have a trajectory to get back to normal. And that's only going to come with testing. So I'm really looking out for those countries with tests, South Korea being the prototype right now, and seeing how that's helping or not helping with not just decision making, but then the implications. Because again, this is all about living our lives. This isn't about just knowing about an, an, an infection and just for the sake of a curiosity. It's to make a decision about, okay, we don't want to do this anymore, right? At least the most people don't want to do this anymore. No one wants to collapse the American economy. I think we can mostly agree on that. A few yeah. people do, and you could argue there's some maybe benefit for restarting something. <laughs> Yeah. That's just generally, I think it would be bad for most people and certainly cause an incredible health crisis in this country. So we don't want that. So then what does that trajectory look like? And what, do you, what needs to happen? Testing needs to happen. We need to know, you mentioned antibodies. We need to know about reinfection rates, right? So these are things that are going to be critical ultimately for us to be able to make informed decisions. So I'm more keen on like, what are the other tools we're getting in place so that we don't have to deal with speculation? Because I think I understand what people know and what they don't know at this point. And I think we know some things, but I think what we don't know is so importantly, basically so important to them being able to make these decisions about like getting a trajectory back to like some sort of normalcy that without that, I just don't think we can proceed. So I'm really like, you know, Abbott's got a test. How soon can that get out? Is that being tested? Is the government gonna start implementing this at scale? Is that gonna be a federal mandate? Can people get back to work because they now have you know, two negative tests or whatever. And, and after right. that, what are the thresholds? So like, those are, those are things that are going to be so much more important. So we know what we're dealing with, which is a lot of uncertainty that's causing a very conservative reaction and the world's part. And I don't, I know, and I want to make it seem like we are so underprepared because a lot of the world also didn't have access to information. But I think with some kind of more vigilance and effort, we could be, we could have been way ahead of this. This country, more than any other country people look to, is like the beacon of kind of cutting edge technology and certainly in medicine. And the fact that we're not there, I think, is a little bit of like a dig. So now it's like, okay, now we're just going to be there with everybody else in the uncertainty. Now can we kind of dig ourselves out of this mess by by just having better information than what we do now? And that's only going to come with better testing and, and, and all that kind of what that means for getting people getting back to work normally, et cetera. So that's where I'm going to be spending a lot of my time this week. And then, you know, social media just doesn't do anybody good right now. I think, you know, it's maybe good. You don't think it's a good way to disseminate some actually some of the, the more useful information that you try? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it, it is, but we all know that like, it's never one or the other. It's you get everything. <laughs> and so like, yeah, it's hard to separate. I, from I, numbers, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I think, it, I think the jury's still out on social media is uh is a modality for for information like like important information dissemination important being like life or death as we're dealing with now and i just don't see any signs that people are good at kind of critical thinking in in you know overall i think there's always pockets that are going to be doing that but that they're going to do that through social media they're going to do that through other outlets as well fishing on the internet so i think it's like all the people who exclusively get their news through social media like Facebook, for example, I think that we're still in trouble there because of all the ways that Facebook allows information to be disseminated. And then, of course, you know, just the, the millions of kind of con contrasting and contradictory 
piece of information and then people just saying oh that one that one fits with what i believe so like let me just take that in yeah evidence now right confirmatory bias so so that's my fear for social media so but but anyway that that's what i'll be doing i don't know if that's helpful but no it's super helpful this whole thing has been really helpful i i'm just thank you so much for taking the time out of it you know a busy night and a busy day we'll have to do this again and again i want to talk about things you want to talk about as well but also we're really this this whole emerging world of vr which just continues to evolve along with AR, especially with the technologies that are coming out and the different ways you can use it for so many things. How can people reach you? So they can feel free to reach out to my I have a personal Gmail, which is probably going to be best. So that is Michael B. Casali at gmail.com. Okay. And are you on Twitter or anything like that? I am on Twitter, so you can find me at Michael Casali uh, on Twitter. And my Twitter handle, I don't even know if I know my Twitter handle. <laughs> there can't be too many Michael Casalis. I'll, I'll make sure. Yeah, yeah. Real quick. I think it's. I, th- I think it might just be Michael B. Casali, but Twitter is also a great way to reach me. I am somewhat active on Twitter. It is also Michael B. Casali. So at Michael B. Casali, those are probably the two best ways to reach me. Okay, I'm gonna end there with Mike. Do you see how exciting it is to actually talk to smart people? Well, we have a lot of other guests coming up on the Idea Land podcast. If you have any ideas for things you wanna hear about, please leave a comment. Otherwise, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. And talk to you later.